Well, good morning. We'll be in Isaiah chapter 63. Isaiah chapter 63 today. As we prepare things to get rolling here, we'll give a little review and a little introduction to what we're talking about here in the book of Isaiah. And uh, today's point is simply this. Now, we're going to answer some questions. This final judgment of God that people seem to be aware of that comes, that the Bible speaks of, who is it that brings this justice? On what terms is this justice brought? And who will be the agent, ultimately, of God's wrath? Those are some of the questions that Isaiah will answer for us today in Isaiah chapter 63. And our point is simply this, as an answer to those questions, is simply this, the Lord Jesus Christ is God's divine warrior who will bring his wrath to the final judgment. So we turn to Isaiah 63 to see what we can see. And as we do that, we want to review. And we want to review uh, very simply by saying this about the book of Isaiah. When it was received by the people who first received it, some 700 years before Christ came, more than 100 years before the Israelites' exile, they understood these things as speaking about judgment upon Judah and Jerusalem, where the Lord was saying, Judah is going to be judged by the nation of Assyria, and but you'll, you'll receive a reprieve from that for a time, but then I'll bring Babylon, and they will just utterly destroy you and take you into exile. Well, the balance of the book after that good news is that, but you'll be reestablished in the land. And you'll take encouragement. And there will be a new Jerusalem that will be reestablished, that will have righteousness in it, that will be uh, developed and restored in such a way as it has never seen before. And that's when we begin to understand that this letter is not simply for the people who lived 700 years before Jesus, because the descriptions of this new Jerusalem and of the restoration of Israel go far beyond anything that ever happened in the history of the nation Israel. And the New Testament then reaches back into some of those passages and say, yes, this is about now, and this is about the future, relevant to today, relevant to Jesus Christ and his first coming and his second coming. And so it begins to speak about the Lord Jesus Christ, though not using his name, it's using many of his titles, that he is this one, this servant, this faithful servant, that he himself is Israel, that he is the one who will accomplish all these things. And it clearly did not happen in Isaiah's day. It did not happen at the return after the exile, but it began to really precipitate when Jesus came in the flesh. And so what we're seeing here is a continuation of this idea on past where we are into the future to speak of the final judgment upon the earth. And this is where we find ourselves in Isaiah chapter 63. And so there's a, today's main point, and we'll get to the text, and we'll see what it says there. What we're seeing here is Isaiah is being given a vision of the Lord as God's divine warrior. And as we read this, we want to understand that when they received this, when Isaiah received this vision, when the people he was with were shared this vision by Isaiah, they understood the illustration because the illustration was common even in other religions of their time, that their God was this divine warrior who went out and fought battles for his people. 
and watch as it unfolds here in Isaiah 63. Begins with a question, and it seems that Isaiah asked the question. Perhaps the Lord just presented him with the vision of this, and he asked the question, Who is this who comes from Edom? Starts off well with a question. In crimson garments from Basra, he who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength, it is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads the winepress? I've trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me. I trod them in, in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. Let's pray. Father God, as we receive your word this day, I pray that you be known and glorified through it. That, Lord, we would have the proper response to this. That, Lord, you would motivate your people to proclaim the truth of the gospel throughout all the earth so that many will be saved. We praise you this day. We thank you for this word. Now encourage us now by your spirit in Jesus' name. Amen. So here we have in these first six verses a somewhat disturbing image. It's a graphic image of a warrior returning from battle. And who is this? ask Isaiah. And, and by him asking, it causes us to look closely at it and consider, to ask the question along with him. Well, yeah, who is this? That's a really good question because this is kind of a scary fellow because he's returning from battle, soaked in blood. And what scholars identify here is what we call a motif, a divine warrior motif. And you'll recognize this in Scripture, that this isn't the only place or time that Jesus Christ is, is considered a divine warrior. And think about when Joshua is getting ready to attack Jericho, the very first conquest within the borders of the Promised Land, and there appears to him what? The captain of the Lord's army appears to him. And it's a terrifying sight. And, you know, Joshua says, you for us or against us? And he says, no. <laughs> in other words, it kind of depends. And he introduces himself, and we believe that to be a Christophany in the Old Testament. But how do we know this is Jesus Christ? How do we know that this is meant to be a divine warrior description of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, if we take a look at verse 4 here, it says, The day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. Well, the book of Isaiah speaks a great deal about redemption, and as the New Testament touches back into the book of Isaiah, it picks up on these passages, and we find out the one who brings a redemption is the Lord Jesus Christ. This is clearly him, and so this is him speaking here, responding to the questions that Isaiah is presenting to him. And these two ideas of the day of vengeance and the year of redemption is found also just a couple chapters earlier in the same context, really, back in chapter 61, verse 2, where it says this, that Jesus came to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. And so it's interesting, that is actually stated 
in Luke chapter 4, where Jesus comes to the synagogue. He's invited to read because it's, it's known now he started his ministry. It's known that he's a rabbi, that he's a teacher of some kind. And so it was customary for the Jewish synagogues. Oh, there's a visiting rabbi, a preacher. This guy's even a local. Let's give him the scroll and, and have him read something. He opens up the scroll to Isaiah, which we know now as chapter 61. He reads the first verse, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he stops there and he rolls up the scroll and he says, today this is fulfilled in your hearing. And they were somewhat astonished at this because you think about what he's saying here where this whole book of Isaiah has been talking about this future time when Jerusalem's going to be perfected, when the people of God are ultimately going to come in from all the nations of the world to come and worship the true God in perfect peace and unity and everything else. And here Jesus reads this scroll. He sits down. He says, this is fulfilled in your hearing. He takes credit for it, but he stopped at what is effectively a comma after this phrase to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he left off there, but the very next phrase is, and the day of vengeance of our God. And so in Isaiah, these two things are paired tightly together, but what Jesus made clear is, I've come to do this much, and this next part waits. The day of vengeance is yet to come. And yet here we have in the prophets these two things line by line right together exactly as they were in the passage we read in verse 4 where he says, The day of vengeance was in my heart and my year of redemption had come. Those things paired right directly together. This is the Lord Jesus Christ then as presented by himself, as presented in the book of Revelation as well. If we look in Revelation chapter 19, Verse 13, this scene is very similar. It describes the Lord's return and it says he is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And so he comes as this great divine warrior. And how is he? Well, he's upon a horse. The armies of heaven are with him, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, following him on white horses. And so he's got a sword with him. He's got the armies of heaven. He's this divine warrior again with the blood-stained clothing. And so this is Jesus as the divine warrior. Now there's more clues right here in the text if we take a look at them, because what is he doing in the text? Well, he's coming back, interestingly, from Edom, that is, from Basra. Let me get us back to that in Isaiah 63 here. He's coming back, he says, from Edom, in crimson garments, from Basra. Well, who's Edom and who's Basra? Make a long story short, it's basically this. Edom was a nickname for Esau, the brother of Jacob. And as you know, there was a little contention between Jacob and Esau. There was a little enmity, a little trouble there. And it got smoothed over later in their life. But when you read the rest of the Old Testament, you find out the nation, which is called Edom, which was Esau's nickname, which means red. You get it, right? You get the connection. It's Edom. He's coming from red and he's red in his clothing, and this is the enemy of Israel, and is, in the, is the enemy of Israel on and off for the next several hundred years. 
And often what happens in the prophets is they'll bring about one particular entity, they'll name it, they'll talk about it, and what it's supposed to do is connect your brain to others. And you're supposed to be thinking, okay, well, if this guy's coming back from judgment upon Edom and Basra, well, then he's judging, therefore, in principle, the enemies of Israel. So that would probably include whatever's left of the Canaanites, whatever is left of the Philistines, perhaps, whatever's left of the Babylonians who took them into exile. And you read the book of Isaiah and you find judgment upon all those groups of people. And so he is fighting the enemies of the people of God. This makes sense when we go all the way back to when they first became a nation at the calling of Abram, where the Lord calls to him, says, go from your country, your kindred, to a land that I will show you. I will make of you a great nation. And look at this. He says, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This was an expectation of the people of Israel that was fundamental to their calling in God that preceded even their covenant with him at Mount Sinai where they were given the law. And this was the idea that the enemies of the people of Israel are the enemies of God. And through our study of Isaiah, we've determined, okay, when he's talking about the people of Israel, he's no longer talking about the mere physical descendants of Israel, that is, Jacob. Because he's expanding it. He's including the nations. And Paul comes along and interprets that for us and says, you know, not all Israel is truly Israel. It's those who are adopted into the family of Abraham by faith. Those who are justified by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ become then what Paul calls the true Israel. So what does that mean by implication? By implication, what it clearly means is that he fights the enemies of the people of God. But what does that mean to us? Does that mean he's going to, you know, he's going to come down here and pop everyone who picks on a Christian? Does that mean this is a temporal kind of thing that's going to be realized in our lifetimes, that he's going to flip everything over? No, it doesn't likely mean that. The language here is what we call apocryphal. It is something of the end times. It is something more profound and more general and seemingly yet future. So who are the enemies then of the people of God? Well, I would suggest to you, based upon what we read in the scriptures, it is all who oppose God and refuse his gospel plan of salvation. Now, the reason why this is a difficult, there's many reasons why this is a difficult passage we find in Isaiah, and there's many reasons why the book of Revelation as a whole, which you can see clearly pulls from some of this content, is difficult to understand. It's because we have spent most of our lives and most of our ministry and most of our thinking on the positive aspects of the ministry of Jesus, on the salvation he brings. And indeed, that does seem to be the focal point. When Paul boils it down to a single thing, he says, it's Christ crucified. That this is the main thing, that he brought salvation through the sacrifice of himself. But the clear point that was made by Jesus and all the apostles and even the Old Testament, as we're seeing here, is not 
everyone will be saved. As a matter of fact, Jesus suggests that a majority will not be. He says, wide is the way that leads to destruction, narrow is the way, and difficult is it that leads to salvation. And so the implication is, there's this vast majority of humanity that's, that's going to refuse the gift of grace, It's going to turn their back on the gospel of grace and their own creator. And so we have to keep in mind with this gospel of Jesus Christ, there are two sides to it, like there are two sides to a coin. Where by definition, a coin has two sides. We ignore the edge, it's fairly thin. But the gospel, by definition, has two sides. Jesus came and he did what was necessary for salvation and he then established the criteria by which all of humanity would be separated. Believer versus unbeliever, sheep versus goats. He describes this in John chapter 12, verses 47 to 48. Look what he says there. We'll find this interesting. He says, I do not, uh, let me back up just a little bit. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. And you say, oh, that's good. See, he didn't come to judge. That's where everyone stops reading. But he goes on, he says, the one who rejects me and does not receive my words as a judge, the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. So Jesus makes it very clear. It is my message that will be the judge. And what people do with it is going to be this separating factor. It's really very simple. There's going to be a people of God that is saved from the penalty and the power and someday the presence of sin itself. And he is preparing a new heavens and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that will be free from sin and sickness and death. It will be full of righteousness and peace. And in order for that place to exist, there must be a division. That those who refuse cannot be there. Those who refuse the gospel cannot be there if it's going to be a place free of sin. If it's going to be a place of eternal celebration and eternal worship. And look how plain Jesus made it. If we look at Matthew chapter 10, he says, Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law and a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And he sums it up like this, whoever finds his life will lose it, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Oddly enough, Jesus came to bring separation. And this is something that's even revealed in the book of Isaiah that we looked at when we were way back there in chapter 8. It says, He will become a sanctuary and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. You see the contrast there? On the one hand, he's going to be a sanctuary. Well, what's a sanctuary? A sanctuary is a safe place, but in the context of of Israel and their worship system and their covenant with God, a sanctuary was the place where God is. 
It's the holy place. That's where God dwells. And so on the one hand, for some people, they're going to be there in the sanctuary dwelling with God. But to others, he's going to be a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. And so there has to be this great divine separation at the end of things. I'm going to further show you that we have been, in many ways, Christendom today is, is almost blind to this other side of the coin, so to speak, in how we think and how we minister the gospel. Look what it says in John chapter 3. And one of our favorite verses in all the world, most of you know it by heart, John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And we see that, and that's encouraging, and it's wonderful. But did you notice it mentions perishing? In other words, the both sides of the coin are visible in this single verse where they would have eternal life, believing in him, they would not perish. But then the implication is the other side of the coin must be there's perishing. And the only way to clear this up is just read on a couple verses, the verses people don't memorize. He says this in verse 17, For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. See how that's parallel to what we saw in John? But listen to what he says here. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. There's both sides of the coin. So the two concepts, salvation and vengeance, are, are inseparable as we consider the gospel. The good news of salvation in Jesus Christ for all who believe can't be separated from the reality of the wrath due to those who by default refuse God. Let's talk a little more about this day of vengeance since that's such a perky topic, right? A little more about this day of vengeance. Let's take a look at it. This uh, uses an illustration here from Isaiah 63, 1, and this imagery, of course, of the victorious warrior returning. Um, if we look in verse 1 here, he's got these crimsoned garments. Okay, this implies a couple things. Later in the passage, very clear, well, they're crimson because of the, the blood, uh, but they're also uh, the one marching in crimson garments, if you were to look at a parade of, of warriors in the old days, uh, the one who's got the brightest color on is probably the leader. Aim for him. You know, that, that exact thing happened in, a, in an account in the Old Testament in which two people went out. And one guy said, why don't you dress up as me, the king, and I'll, I'll wear these other clothes and, and we'll see what happens. And he, he died anyway. <laughs> Cheerful, cheerful Old Testament story. But this is really serious when we look at verse 1 here because he's in crimson garments, which implies this is the commander. This is the one that's in charge, but it also implies it, these are blood-soaked. And then it says he is marching in the greatness of his strength. And it's very interesting, this word that's translated here as marching in the form it's in here really primarily usually means to stoop or to bend. Say, so what does that mean, stooping and bending? He's, seems like he's marching. Well, he is marching. It's, it's kind of the context that makes us see he is returning, and so he's traveling, so he's marching. But why the stooping and bending? You ever seen someone receiving a royal reception as they come into the city, and people are praising and, and shouting and maybe even singing songs, and what does the, the victorious warrior do? He, he nods to them. They're 
Yes, thank you. Thank you very much. He's coming in. He's marching. He's stooping. He's bending. He's bowing in acknowledgement to all the accolades he's receiving at the greatness of his strength. And he's showing that greatness by returning, number one, but by returning victorious, most importantly, He's accepting this applause. All this is on full display. And now contrast this to his first coming. And read Revelation 19 and and, and think about the, the vision there of him coming in the clouds with all this great power and with the drawn sword and, and with the hosts of the army of heaven compared to the first time and being laid in a manger and swaddling cloths. And the idea that he is the Lamb of God come the first time, but the second time he is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. In verse 1 here, you notice his reply is simply this, it is I speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. And this we see in contrast to what Isaiah saw earlier. When Isaiah in chapter 6 accounts his vision that the Lord gave him of seeing the throne room of God, what is his reaction? His reaction is, woe is me for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And a, a large portion of the book of Isaiah indicts the people of Israel for their sins. And if we have any brain whatsoever when we read it, we ourselves are touched by it. Because we understand that speaks of me. I don't always say what I ought to say. And, and I don't always say the encouraging thing I should say, and I often say the discouraging thing that I ought not to say. And we read the other indictments of his people and the things they were involved in and, and, and simply not putting God first and not worshiping him uh, properly with their hearts and, and going after other gods and wrong priorities and treating each other unfairly and the injustice that they were committing upon each other and things like that. And we ought to see a part of ourselves there as Isaiah did. But look at the contrast because who comes to solve their problems? Because as the book of Isaiah turns to great encouragement, and it really seems to make that turn about chapter 40, where it seems to have more encouragement than it has discouragement, the turning is this, there's one who's going to come and deal with this. He's not like us. He's a perfect servant. He's a righteous servant. He's a willfully suffering servant. He's a vicariously suffering servant. In other words, he suffers in our place. And we go back to verse 1, and it says, It is I speaking in righteousness. Look at the contrast he is to you and I. To the faithful prophet Isaiah even. And he says he is mighty to save. There are two illustrations here that really need to get our attention here in chapter 63. The first one is the blood-soaked warrior returning from battle. We talked about the warrior very much. But the second is this. You know, when he asked, why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads a winepress? He says, I've trodden a winepress alone. And so the illustration here is of a farmer treading out the grapes. 
In those days, what they would do is they had a great big vat, usually made of stone, usually chiseled in such a way as to allow the, the grape juice to flow out and be captured in a vessel off the side. And they would literally, with their feet, hopefully clean them first, go and tromp the grapes. And when you do that, they will inevitably squirt and stain your garments. He is picturing himself as a farmer for the harvest. And the wine press in Scripture is often used as an illustration of judgment. We see it in the book of Joel. We see it probably, uh, we see it also in the book of Lamentations, where it speaks of the nation Israel. The Lord rejected all my mighty men in my midst. He summoned an assembly against me to crush my young men. The Lord has trodden as in a wine press the virgin daughter of Judah. In other words, when he's all done with Judah, then the message from Jeremiah here is, it's like he tread us in a wine press. We see it again in the book of Revelation. In chapter 14, another angel came out of the temple in heaven and he too had a sharp sickle. So here we have it generalized to a harvest motif. Another angel came out from the altar. The angel had authority over the fire and he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of earth and threw it into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and the blood flowed from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. So the Bible uses this imagery of the wine press and more generally the imagery of harvest in general. And isn't that interesting because doesn't it use on the other side of the coin the imagery of harvest for the gospel, for salvation? Where it says, oh, the, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. Pray then for laborers be sent out into the harvest. And Jesus speaks often of these, these agrarian kind of illustrations where we're scattering seed and there's going to be a, a multifold increase in the return on the spreading of the gospel and the harvest that will come. But the other side of the coin is a dark harvest. The other side of the coin is a harvest unto judgment. Jesus alone also takes on the enemies of God. He does this alone. In verse 3, look what he says. He says, I have trodden the winepress alone. And from the peoples, no one was with me. From all the nations, no one was there to be with him. He did this alone. He reiterates it in verse 5 by saying, I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. Jesus alone takes the vengeance on the enemies of God. Have you ever wondered why the Bible says, Vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. The implication is, you're not to take vengeance. I'm to take vengeance. And have you thought about that, why the Lord says that? Why we're not to take vengeance for ourselves? Why are we to turn the other cheek? Why are we to go along and get along as much as it depends upon us? Because we are not worthy to take vengeance. See, think about this. If I find someone out there that's a liar, 
And the Bible says all liars have their place in the lake of fire. Can I take vengeance on that guy? Or have I myself lied? And am I not worthy then to take his life? Remember when Jesus, they, they had caught a woman in the act of adultery and brought her before Jesus. Now whether these were true charges or what, where the man was, who knows. They're trying to ensnare Jesus in John chapter 8. And they, they bring this woman before and Jesus very wisely says, okay, yeah, the law says that adulterers should be stoned. That's true. How about the one of you without sin throw the first stone? And one by one, they all dropped their stones and walked away. Why? Because Jesus had spoken a truth. In the book of Revelation, which I sometimes think, I, I think John was the most durable disciple. And I think that for a couple reasons. Number one, he outlived all the others. Number two, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs, they tried to kill him once by boiling him in oil, and it didn't work. So I think John was like the tick of the disciples. In other words, not a parasite, but just durable. And the reason why, the biggest reason why I think he's durable is because he received the revelation of Jesus Christ. And it is so shocking, and it is so gripping, and it is so powerful. What kind of a soul must it have taken? What kind of a heart must it have taken to endure such things? Well, at points he did weep. Look in Revelation chapter 5 as he begins to account these things in heaven. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. So he has a, a, a vision of the divine council happening here, the throne room of God, much like Isaiah had in chapter 6 of Isaiah. He says, I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or look into it. Through time and place, God communicated with human beings and he communicated with people like John and like Isaiah and like Ezekiel and Jeremiah and all the others and Moses and, and all the people throughout history, the faithful men of old. And they were granted the word of God and they could see the word of God and they were given the word of God and they, they were used to write the word of God by the guidance of the spirit. And yet here's this scroll, it's in the hand of him who's on the throne, who is the Lord. And no one's worthy to open it or to look into it. And all of humanity, the eyes could seech all of time through the ages, through the thousands of years and the millions of people, and not one human being is worthy to open a scroll. And that's really sad. It made John weep. It means, in other words, there's something that God has that we don't have access to because we've blown it, because it's too late, because we're people of unclean lips, living amongst people of unclean lips. But one of the elders say to him, weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. That's the Lord Jesus Christ, the lion of the tribe of Judah. He can open the scroll. And this is an important thing, and this is an important scroll, and it's this one that shows up. You know, occasionally there's scrolls presented to the prophets here, eat this. Oh, it's pleasant to the stomach, but, you know, it's, it's bitter to taste. And, oh, it tastes sweet, but it's bitter to the stomach, you know. There's various scrolls handed out to the prophets and words and images and visions given to them. Here's this one no one can see. And what is this scroll all about? Wrath. Seal after seal is broken open and various judgments upon the earth are described in the following chapters. And the seventh seal gives rise to the seven bowls and the seven bowls give rise to the seven trumpets. And it's, it's really astonishing to read and it's dreadful to read and it's hard to read. Why? Because this is the other side of the coin. This is the judgment of God. He, and looking back in Isaiah chapter 63, his apparel is read. Why? This is blood. The apparel is stained with blood as one who's been treading in the winepress gets stained with the juice. And this is the Lord Jesus Christ wearing the consequence of his reign, of his law, of his promises, of his righteousness. He is wearing the consequence of having saved us. The blood-stained clothing is like the scars that he continues to bear on his resurrection body. And he does not hide it. For he has eradicated evil finally and personally as the creator himself. And isn't that his right? And doesn't the potter have the right to do as he will with his vessels? But here he is wearing it. Here in Isaiah, there in Revelation we saw it. He is not ashamed of it. He has done no wrong. This is the day of vengeance along with the year of redemption or the day of salvation. And he says, it was in my heart. He says in verse 4. Oh, went to the wrong place. He says in Isaiah 63, 4, the day of vengeance was in my heart. It was something that he had in all of who he is, that this must be necessary. He's not bound by some kind of law outside of himself. He's not shuffling toward the thing that he must do, the thing that he's forced to do. He is embracing the thing that he desires to do. But we need to understand that Jesus is righteous in his wrath, but that does not mean that he delights in it. Do you understand the difference? He is right to do it. He is, he is proud to do it. I mean, he displays that he has done it. He openly shows that he's going to do it, but that doesn't mean he enjoys it. Listen to how Ezekiel accounts this as they're over in exile, and he's talking to the people of Judah in exile. The Lord says, have I any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord, and not rather that he should turn from his way and live? 
Isn't this what it says in the New Testament when Peter talks about this? The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, talking about the delay of his return, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. That on one hand, the desire of the Lord is for everyone to be saved, but what clearly is the truth is that not all will. And therefore, it's necessary for justice and for righteousness. Do you realize it is necessary for the love of God that this separation take place? Because what he is doing is his original intention for mankind was bliss, was this Garden of Eden that they were to spread over the whole face of the earth, that they were to have dominion over the earth and spread the garden influence everywhere it was. The garden was the place where he dwelt. He dwelt with them in person and they knew him. There, were no sin, there was no sin, there were no enemies, no decay, no sickness, no death. But God doesn't give up on his plans. He is restoring Eden. He is restoring those conditions. And all who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ will enjoy those conditions with him. And in order for him to do the loving thing, to have a humanity that has been redeemed, to enjoy him forever, he must do a separation. Jesus Christ is this faithful divine warrior that can do the job. He is indeed the only one qualified to do this job. And he's the one who was tested in every way as we are, even more so, but without sin. He was the one that was designated before the foundation of the earth to crush the head of the serpent and redeem the people of God. He indeed is worthy to open the scroll. So the question comes to us then in this difficult passage. What ultimately does this mean to me? Are we just satisfying a curiosity of how things are going to play out, of, of what's going to happen, or does this have some real relevance to my life? Well, the first thing we need to do is to resolve, is, as it says in the New Testament, to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. Have you noticed things aren't quite right upon the earth? Anyone ever notice that? Please don't watch the news. But if you do, you'll notice that. Okay? You can't believe, you know, a lot of what you see on the news, but we do understand this. Things are not quite right on the earth. And that is this enormous sign, this great big billboard in front of our face all day, every day, that should be telling us to get right with God, therefore. Because if he's any kind of God, if he's the right kind of God, he's going to set things right, and we had better be on the right side of that dividing line. Because he is holy, and he is just, and he is loving, but he has drawn a line, and those line are the, that line is the words that Jesus said. The Lord cannot, by his character, allow the world to continue as it is. There is a great separation coming. And we all know this, because a great separation comes to us all in the form of death. That at that time, the Bible says it's appointed for man once to die and then the judgment. And so it's clear, you realize humanity has about a 100% death rate. Yeah, I know there was Enoch and Elijah. We don't really know what happened with them. They were taken up. But you know, you round it out over the thousands of years and the millions of people, and it's basically 100%. We all die. 
And so this becomes then a very personal thing. And I want you to notice something about this, that this is personal with the Lord Jesus. See, the word vengeance is used here. Very often in the scriptures, you'll see the word justice. And very often you'll see the word vengeance. And do you know what the difference is? The difference seems to be how personal it is. See, if you're an impartial judge and someone's brought before you that has sinned against somebody according to the law, well, you're neutral to that. The law is the law. You know, those people, you're not the victim here. They're brought before you. You execute justice. But if this person brought before you sinned against you yourself and you bestow a penalty upon them, now it's vengeance. And this word vengeance is what's used here. And this ought to have us thinking, okay, this is vengeance. This is therefore personal. The judgment God has against you and I is personal, but so is the salvation that he brings. It's intimately personal. Two sides of the same coin. It is an imminent God. That is, he is personal. He is right there, and we have relationship with him or we do not and either way it is personal so what we want to do is we want to make sure we're found on the right side of that and I've had people come to me through the years occasionally now and then who question who wonder who say I'm not quite sure if I've got this right I'm not quite sure I'm in Christ I'm not quite sure I'm even a Christian I'm coming to church, I'm doing these things, but I don't know. And you know what we do? We talk and we pray. We open the word of God, we see what it says. And every time is ended in celebration, in comfort. So it's my encouragement to you today is get with somebody who can counsel you in the scripture, someone who knows these things that can open it up to you and say, yeah, let's, let's find out what it takes. Let's find out what it is, this salvation thing and, and how it is we partake of it. And that's the first thing we want to do in applying this to us today. The second thing is we must be moved with great compassion to fulfill Christ's commission because this is, this final judgment's happened. We don't know when, but the, the end of the book of Revelation says it's coming quickly, and that was written almost 2,000 years ago. So I'd rather say it's, it's maybe more quickly today than it was then. It's coming soon and unexpectedly. Let us be the ones who make all those around us prepared. Let's pray. Father God, you have indeed encouraged us. Lord, we are not worthy to take the vengeance upon those who refuse you and your gospel, though we love you and we love your gospel, Lord, we have no place in this judgment. But yet, Lord, we see that in order for you to be right and just and loving, that you must partake in this judgment. And we know that you will, for you have said you will, and you've done everything else you've said you will. So, Lord, this day we pray you will help us all to consider ourselves where we stand with you. And if we stand with you, Lord, give us the, the faith and encouragement 
Give us the strength and the joy to go out and proclaim this great truth to others because, Lord, nobody, according to your plan, must perish. For the gospel message has been sent out and we carry it. And beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. Lord, we carry this message out and we have this message of life, this message of salvation. Lord, let us be bold with it. Let us be loving with it. And let us be truthful with it and display both sides so that many will be saved. Many voices will be lifted up to you. And we pray, Lord, that some of the voices that praise you in a new heavens and new earth are there because of our faithful actions. And it will be all to your glory for your great kindness in Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, for bringing us together and for teaching us this day. In Jesus' name, amen.